thousands of posters, flyers, t-shirts, stickers, buttons, he decided to share his treasures with the world. So in 2015, he began scanning and uploading these to the Instagram account, The Flyer Vault. Today, that Instagram account has over 11,500 followers. And earlier this year, Dundurn published the book, The Flyer Vault, 150 Years of Toronto Concert History, written by Rob Bowen and our next guest, Daniel Tate. Hello, hello. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah. thanks for coming in. By the way, it's Rob Bowman, not Bowen. <laughs> I can't read my writing. It's okay. Rob Bowen. <laughs> we'll get a dude person. named Rob. A dude named Rob. <laughs> there you go. Um, I have to say, first so first off, this is like an the the Instagram account, which uh, my brother first shared with me. I don't know how long ago, a year or so ago. Um, it's lots of fun, you know, just to look at and lots of work. I guess but so. But fun work. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you have, you must have, like, all of these images. Um, do you still look for new images? Are people still sending you? Oh, yeah, all the time. Yeah. yeah. People reach out. Hey, you know, I've been cleaning out my basement, found some old records inside the records or, like, old flyers or charts or old magazines. You want them because otherwise I'm going to chuck them. Um, wow. And then I still do my own digging, just hitting up different archives, checking out old like newspapers and whatever. I'm always yeah. keeping my eyes open for discovering new nuggets of Toronto music history that maybe are forgotten. Yeah. And kind of like bringing it back to the forefront. Where did you get this love of not just music? Because I think people come to music from different way, you know, different areas. But I think most people have a a love or they enjoy music or music means something to them. But in terms of what you do in your your archiving that you've done, like for first of all collecting all of these, thinking that you could do something with them, I don't know what you were thinking, but what were you thinking when you started collecting all well, of these flyers and posters? When I was collecting them, it was actually many, many, many years ago, so yeah, a couple decades decades ago, and I didn't have any like grand plan of what I was going to do with them. Yeah, I just wanted to hold on to them because I was just a fan. Like when you're a teenager, I'm sure we all had stuff all over our walls. You know, yeah, yeah, I'd yeah. rip mm-hmm. out. Um, ads from like Vibe and the Source magazine and throw them up on my wall. And and I actually have pictures of my old bedroom. And it's just like, you ever see that movie? It came out last year, mid-90s. Jonah Hill produced it. It's basically like no, these no. kids. It's like these like skater kids in L.A. Yeah, circa yeah, like 94, yeah. 95. And they all listen to Wu-Tang. They're all like smoking Philly blunts and kind of living <laughs> that, that lifestyle. And that's pretty much what I was, right? Yeah. So I used to throw up all these old posters on my wall go downtown, grab mixtapes. But at the same time, all these flyers that were in all the record stores to me was like memorabilia, right? Wow. Sure, they were meant to be thrown out. like, But yeah. to me, you know, these pieces of paper were really cool because they were promoting artists that I loved. So I just thought it'd be cool to hold on to them. And luckily, through many different you know, moves and going to university and, and moving downtown and buying a condo and this and that. Usually when you move, things get lost. Yeah, yeah. Right? Like, for example, my father had, like, the 1952 top set. Whoa. Yeah, but, you know, my grandma threw it out mm-hmm. in of some kind of moves. Yeah. You know, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 52 Mickey Mantle? Ah, whatever. <laughs> Toss the garbage, right? So you hear those stories with our parents' generation, yeah. but luckily with, with me, I had sort of the foresight to really hold on to all these artifacts. And uh, the artifacts stayed with me, and then I rediscovered them a few years ago 
And I was like, well, hey, you know, now we're in a highly digitized era. We're yeah. in we're in a high bandwidth era, uh, era. Why don't I just take all these and upload them to the internet for the masses to enjoy? And one one of the things I noticed when going back and, and to be honest with you, going through the Instagram feed was like tripping down memory lane in a huge way. Um, it's it seemed to start out really focused on hip hop and probably because of what you're talking about in the '90s and and DJs and rap. Am I correct with that? And then and then it evolved. Did it evolve because you had other stuff to share? Did it evolve because people wanted a breadth of well, you know, it, it did start with a, a big emphasis on hip hop because yeah. that's where the original collection really came from. Yeah. Um, but just through various different circumstances, it evolved into other areas. Uh, I think first and foremost, my general interest in music and the roots of music uh, helped precipitate expanding the collection. And when you look at hip hop as a genre in general, it is the result of all sorts of influences oh, yeah. from reggae to R&B to soul music. So it was kind of natural to go, if you're starting from hip hop to go back uh, in those influences, but also um, people started sending me stuff that was kind of out of the original mm. uh, theme that I had, yeah. but it was like, cool because I love discovering new music. Mm. And as far as I'm concerned, if, if, a if I discover an artist or a song that came out in 1978, to me, it's new music new. because sure. I'm hearing it for sure. the first time. I don't care that it might have been recorded 40 years ago. Yeah. But and so that this project for me personally was really re rewarding because I was discovering all sorts of music that I never could have discovered if it wasn't for people sending me flyers or on my own volition yeah. researching hi historical uh, music. Like so, for example, I was going through these old na uh, old now magazines in one of the archives here and I discovered this guy named Nash the Slash oh, yeah. who really tripped me out when I first saw these these flyers for him because he's like wrapped up in bandages like he's like a burn patient or something he's playing the violin and so you look at him you're like whoa there's something going on with this dude I gotta get more information and then I started listening to him yeah. and I was like blown away yeah. uh, his music was really incredible and so that's one of the positive side effects for me personally of this project is it's just opened up a, a wide world of music that i've personally discovered and so and plus why just keep it to hip-hop i love hip-hop but yeah. i mean why narrow this project into one lane when you can open it up to many lanes so when you talk about nash and uh, there's a documentary being made right now about nash's life um and I also look at, you know, in the book and some of the stuff on, on Insta around The Clash. Like, you've got various projects like Nick Smash is doing The Clash thing that we're going to go to in December. Yeah. Right? For early December at the Riv. Um, have you worked with any of these other projects to pull together? I just, as I'm flipping through it, honestly, I'm thinking, like, that would be amazing. Yeah. It, now I'm starting to get, we're starting to get more um, more buzz. Yeah. And, and now that the book is out, there's a lot more um exposure yeah. and so people know yeah. about what me and rob are working on mm -hmm. and so yeah people have reached out for help oh. and and i'm totally willing to and anybody who's sort of expanding the the musical knowledge base out yeah. in the city is you know that's to me you're doing you're doing god's work so i'll certainly be willing to help yeah. any way i can yeah cool how did you get getty lee to write your forward 
Great question. That's probably one of the most common questions I get. And I still have to pinch myself because I'm like, Am I, is this real life? Like, Getty yeah. Lee is sort of co-signing this book here. Um, but God bless him because it was as simple as just messaging him. Really? On Instagram because he was following me, which was also a bit crazy. Um, and uh, I pestered him a little bit. Yeah. You know, he's a he's obviously a very busy guy um, and a highly revered rock god mm -hmm. right and so <laughs> I, it was sort of a it was a long shot yeah. for sure but i just had this vision that getty lee was the right guy to introduce this book because number one he's a proud born and bred yep. torontonian he loves the city still lives here i've personally um posted many rush flyers to yeah. the account and, yeah. and there's a lot of rush fans who follow me um and he followed me. He was like a fan of the account. So I just figured like it would make sense sure. for him to do it. So I just DM'd him and I got his email and then I started like, you know, <laughs> I'd like write an email. Yeah. And it, and then it'd be like, it's kind of like when you write like um like a cover letter for a job interview or something, you want it to be like perfect. So I'd, I'd write it and I'd be like, no, that sounds like shit. I'm like <laughs> acting too needy or I'm like whatever. So then I'd scrap it. I write it again. Um, so I was definitely like overthinking it probably, but eventually I wrote a very concise, nice uh, email asking if he'd be willing to be involved. He said, let me think about it. Uh, we went back and forth. He then went on a book tour cause he has a big book of base that he's promoting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then finally just, I guess uh, I kept pestering him about it. So he eventually relented and said, no problem. Ha here you go. That's so, awesome. So good man, Getty Lee. That is so, mm -hmm. that is so cool. The first poster in your book, outside of the, you've got a compilation of rush ones. Um, uh, is, is that one right there? Yeah. The hip. A little iconic the hip. Yeah. Hat show. Did you, was that a, how did you choose that to be the first? I actually didn't. I think Dundurn did. Okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so the, the, the way it worked, just to give you some insight yeah, into the process. Yeah. Um, so the, the first <clears throat> so when we got the book deal, we didn't have a manuscript or anything. This yeah. was strictly all on an idea, right? Mm. I didn't, we, me and Rob didn't want to invest all the effort in actually writing a manuscript only to get rejected, yeah. right? So we pitched the idea of the book, the concept. Um, and only until we signed the dotted line did we actually get to work on the manuscript. Okay. So that's how, how that came to fruition. The next challenge was to take a database of about six to 7,000 images, mm -hmm. flyers, et cetera, et cetera, and narrow it down to 180, which is like no easy task. Yeah, no doubt. So uh, that took a few weeks because me and Rob went back and forth on which which ones we felt would be book worthy. Uh, many of them were, but a lot of a lot of them just you know didn't make the the the, the cut yeah. because of of the constraints of the book. Um, so we narrowed it down, and then basically I just told it, I told Dundurn these are the ones we want in each chapter, mm -hmm. and then for the intro they just kind of just did a random selection okay. so that's why but hey i have no problem with the first one you see is the tragically hip at acc bringing in the millennium yeah, yeah. december 31st mm -hmm. in i wasn't there but i mean look at this lineup the real statics hayden skydiggers the mahones you got two nights of the hip and what i also love about this one is it's it's done by hat show print in nashville and they're a very well-known legendary uh um producer of concert posters they have a very specific aesthetic to their like I'm sure you've seen mm -hmm. these the, this style yeah. of mm -hmm. poster before yeah. so they're really well known uh, it's a beautiful print and I'm glad it made the book 
Well, you know, it's funny you bring that up because I was going to bring up the last full page poster. What's the, the well, let's go to the end of the book. Oh, which one is JK. That? JK Rowling? No. <laughs> <laughs> Jamiroquai. Yep. Emergency on Planet Earth. Yeah. What an album. At the Opera House. I mean, yeah. that's, that's what I loved. Again, when I talk about tripping down memory lane, going through the book and going through the Insta feed, is like some the shows you've highlighted, and it's not just like at the ACC or at like it's at the yeah. Opera House, it's at the Bamboo, it's at. That's another big theme of the project that I, that I've put together here yeah. um, is going back in time to a lot of these like major artists, but looking at their come up. Right, like you know, everybody kind of started, and many artists started it. Well, unless you're Elton John, your first mm. show was at, at Maple Leaf Gardens, right? <laughs> yeah. But for pretty much everybody else, sure, you had the come up. You were struggling in the underground. You were playing little ghetto venues, uh, maybe not even getting paid, things like that. Like for example, Adele, her first show was at the Rivoli mm-hmm. for like twenty people, Crazy. right? Within a year. She's selling out the Air Canada Center. Yeah. Right. So to me, it's fascinating to see the the humble beginnings of a lot yeah. of these artists. Yeah. Um, you can really kind of appreciate their story more when you see how they first broke into our city. And Jamiroqu- Jamiroquai. I mean, I'm a huge fan of Jamiroquai, and and most people are. I mean, they're an incredible band. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just thought it was awesome, like um, that they played a pretty small venue known as the Opera House when their first album came out, mm-hmm. and. That is for me one of those time machine shows where, uh, if if I could go back in time, I'm hitting up this show for sure. Must have been a funky extravaganza. I can only imagine. I don't know why I wasn't there. I and uh, shout out to Jonathan Ramos who promoted that show. Well known promoter in the city. Neat. Um, so actually, wanna, I want not necessarily now, but I do want to. I do want to talk about some of the promoters and mm-hmm. some of the, like like Elliot Lefkoe and guys like that. Let's they're a big. There, yeah. They're a big part of the book. Yeah, they're sort yeah. of the um, the protagonists, the main characters yeah. uh, of of many of these stories in the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not, Gary's. Yeah. You don't you don't hear of of these promoters anymore, right? Well, that's what we're trying to change. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Or, because yeah. so let's talk about that because there's, there's there's venues which you ta- touched on. Yep. You want to talk about venues. Uh, but promote so let's let's start with promoters like who who were some of the and I guess it's different for different genres of music different um, eras yeah different eras as well um, who were who were some of these names some of these promoters that were very instrumental in bringing you know some of these amazing bands to Toronto yeah well first and foremost we give a lot of credit to the Garys Gary mm-hmm. Top and Gary Cormier. Uh, they had a pretty legendary run. Yep. These guys were promoting, and I think Gary Topps still promotes even to this day, but these guys were promoting in Toronto for decades. Um, and they were promoting at a time when um, there wasn't a lot of promoters. Like There was like the, the big promoter of, the, of that time, we're going back to, say, the 70s and 80s, was CPI, yep. mm-hmm. sort of the pre- predece- predecessor of what would be Live Nation today. And then you had the Garys who were sort of representing the independents, yeah. right? And these guys were bringing in just the most avant-garde, edgy, new, uh, exciting artists that maybe CPI wasn't touching, or artists that maybe couldn't fill, like Maple Leaf Gardens back then. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the Garys were bringing in these artists to places like the Horseshoe. So you know the they brought edge. in the, they brought in the Police. They would bring yeah. in like Sun Ra Arch- uh, Orchestra, Richard Hell, the uh, the Voidoids. Um, then they would go to The Edge and program yeah. The Edge, which was a punk mecca yeah. around 80, 81 to, I think, maybe 
83 or 84 yeah. when it closed. It was, yeah. a, it was a short-lived club. Yeah. But I wasn't there, but Rob, who wrote the punk chapter, speaks yeah. very highly of The Edge, of course, mm-hmm. but the Garys in general because these guys broke punk rock in our city. Wow. They brought the Ramones here in 1976 to the New Yorker Theater uh, for, I think it was three shows, uh, eight, 12, and maybe I think there was one the next day. Then they brought the Ramones again the following year. And it was the first Ramones show that set the fuse for punk in our city. And Toronto, over the next few years, became a hotbed of punk music in all of North America. It was rivaling scenes in Detroit, in New York. Were there Toronto bands, Toronto punk bands? Of course, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Teenage Head, The Vile Tones. um, Rebels out of Hamilton. Yep. Um, Many others. And... and, a lot of these bands were actually in attendance at that Ramon show, and, and many of them say that that show really is what set off this this scene, yep. this grassroots punk scene. And for a while, Toronto was, again, a major North American hotbed for punk rock. I don't really hear about that at all. So you give props to the Garys. And, but then if you're, if you're staying with punk and, hard, and hardcore, then you look at other promoters like Jill Heath, who had Jill Jill Productions, Jam, uh, which is uh, this guy, Jamil, I forget his last name. They started really bringing a lot of these hardcore bands like Bad Brains and Black Flag um, and, and other bands. Um, and then, of course, with hip-hop, we talk about Ron Nelson. We talk about Jonathan Gross, Jonathan Ramos. The Garys also brought hip-hop as mm. well. They brought in Grandmaster Flash in 1983, which also sparked a lot of, a lot of interest and in a lot of hip-hop interest in our city. Um, and then we talk, I mean, there's, I, I could go on and on, yeah. but there, we, we talk about uh, a lot of different promoters and we try to give them props in the book because promoters usually don't get the props, <laughs> yeah. right? Cause it's all about the artist. Sure. Right. And they also so, are the ones that get shit on when nobody shows exactly. up and there's no crowd. Promoters always they get shit on. So <laughs> we wanted to give them yeah, some yeah. love in the book and give them some credit. And, uh, hopefully we did a good job doing that. Yeah. Queen street makes a, has a chapter in this book. Yes. Why is Queen Street, or how did Queen Street become so important f- to music in Canada, in Toronto? Yeah, so I initially didn't think we would do a chapter on Queen Street, but Rob said we have to give Queen Street its have own to. chapter. Yeah. Um, and, you know, Rob, Rob's a very well-known person, and he knows this city, and he knows music, like, an encyclopedia, and if he says Queen Street deserves its own chapter, then yeah. I'm not going to challenge him. <laughs> and then he ended up writing it, and I realized after reading it, wow. I mean, I kind of knew Queen Street had something bubbling um, when, because in the '90s, um, my Queen Street experience were, were places like the Rivoli, the Horseshoe, the Bamboo, mm-hmm. 360, Cameron House, mm-hmm. right? And that's a lot just there. Yeah, and so Queen Street, coming up in the 90s, Queen Street to me was always an exciting strip, Mm -hmm. right? There was always things bubbling. There was always music venues. There was a lot of independent showcases. But if you go back even earlier, um, the the late 70s and 80s, Queen Street really was just a hub of 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 exciting independent artists, grassroots Mm -hmm. artists who who had an opportunity to get on stages and hone their craft. Yeah. And there were a lot of venues that were supporting them and facilitating them. And, um, you know, the Queen Street scene was able to cultivate a lot of this homegrown talent, a lot of this Canadian talent. And a lot of these acts ended up becoming major recording stars, yeah. right? Uh, you look at, like, that one, for example. You know, you see, like... Wh- 
the bamboo 1986 blue rodeo for what four dollars two dollars whatever it was pursuit of happiness back in the day yeah so to me it was just really interesting to think there was a time in this city where you could just roll into an incredibly eclectic place like the bamboo pay a couple bucks or maybe no cover even and see an upcoming band named blue rodeo yeah and maybe mm-hmm. have a couple beers, eat some of their world famous pad thai. Like those are just experiences that I thought we both thought were worthy of talking about in the book. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, mm-hmm. Greg, you you were in the music scene business. Played for a few years. Uh, in fact, your Insta, you talk about bands that are like that were coming up that weren't famous yet. <laughs> There's actually one of your Insta posts. It has it starts with us headlining on a Friday night at Lee's Palace. And that same week was the Forgotten Rebels, uh, the Smithereens, Leslie Spit Trio, and fucking Blur. Oh yeah, <laughs> in one week. Somebody was, actually commented on that one. Yeah, that, that was, was, that was we sort of he brought it up because I'm like, it was when I was doing my book? research. Is I'm like, I'm like, no, what? that one's not in the no, book. No, but no, but it was but, just um, like what? <laughs> yeah, because uh, again, I was um, just perusing old yeah. old rags, and I saw. I mean, obviously, Blur is what <laughs> stuck out. I'm like, oh shit, Blur. <laughs> huge band yeah. and, and they played lees yeah. on a random i don't know maybe it was a wednesday thursday whatever it was and again you just in your mind you kind of daydream you, you go back you're like oh imagine i could just turn back the hands of time or go into a delorean and yeah. go to that show yeah, yeah. and experience it and maybe it was a shitty show i don't know like a lot yeah. of these bands i mean you look at nirvana's for a show it was a bit of a shit yeah. show right yeah reading that but the, yeah it's still kind of cool just to go back to to see where a lot of these bands started in our city uh, and so, yeah, that was a cool post. I and got yet a lot you of have, on that one. You have um, the Peppers first show at Lee's. Yes. And if I'm not mistaken, and again, I wonder, we're going to talk about myths and legends <laughs> at some point. Yeah. I believe that was the first show that they came out wearing socks. Just socks. Oh, just socks. Just socks. <laughs> Which is like the trademark. My, do you remember my ice bucket challenge video? That was a while, yeah. Yeah, yeah, where I was just wearing a sock at the end of it. <laughs> yeah, that was an homage to that show. Yeah, they're, no, they're known for that. Here it is, yeah. Yep. Thelonious Monster. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At Lee's Palace. This was, um, and, and I, also, I also have to give props to this guy, Richard Martin, who reached out to me on Instagram. He said, hey, man. Uh, I have the Red Hot Chili Peppers original poster when they played Lee's. Are you interested? <laughs> I was like, uh, yes. Can we meet, please? Yeah. And so not only did we meet, he let me uh, get a copy of it, and I scanned it, and I, I knew immediately I wanted to put this in the book because yeah. um, because it was basically sitting in his basement, like gathering dust. Nobody yeah. knew about it. Yeah. And that's one of the cool things about the account and, and the project that the, of the Flyer Vault is that it's galvanized a lot of people yeah. to like maybe check their own yeah. personal yeah. archives and yeah. maybe find some nuggets uh, and contribute to this because really this is a contri- contribution to the community. Yeah. Uh, this book is for is for the city and it's great that this incredible poster of the Red Hot Chili Peppers first show in 1986 yeah. sees the light of day. Yeah. Um, you know, 34 years later. Uh, and that's thanks to people like Richard who reached out to me and said, hey, we, are you interested in this? So a lot of people actually have – and that's another one somebody reached out to me about. This one. Yeah. The, the pol- that police, police for $5. <laughs> police at the Edge. At the Edge. Yeah. I never even knew there's a place called the Edge. Yeah. So what is it now? What is there? Like a- no, it was – it became like – I think it's the same building that like ended up being Zippers. The yeah, I'm not bar, sure where, what it is it's, today. It's now at, it's a tower. It's like um, yeah, across, like just down from Maple Leaf Gardens, it's a Gerard and Church. Yeah, 
Okay. Um, wow. It used to be, it's original, well, it's a very old building, so yeah. it probably has some sort of like, um, it probably goes back to the 19th century. But it actually started as a disco club called mm-hmm. um, Edgerton's, I think. And it got converted to this uh, punk rock club, uh, New Wave Club, and The Edge is, I think there's another uh, either book or documentary about The Edge. So everyone, people, A lot of people are working on different things, but The Edge, you could write a whole book about that place. Really? I mean, I wasn't there, but from yeah. what I've heard, just an incredible place. Yeah, and I, I recommend for yourself and, and anybody that really wants to get into it, like when we talk about the Garys and The Edge, <laughs> like research that shit because there's so much history particularly the early days of CFNY. Like we went and saw Marsden and Marsden was talking about that the other week. It's like, there's so much that happened in that time. That was just, you know, like you said, new bands from England that they were bringing in that nobody had ever heard of. And then the edge, like not the uh, CFNY would start to pick it up and play it. And and it it was breaking, it was breaking stuff in North America that nobody was listening to. Yeah. CFNY played a a big role too, because they were the one, one of the few radio stations that were taking some risks yeah. with a lot of this new music coming out in the 80s. One of the funniest things about these these posters is when you read where you had to go get your tickets from. <laughs> yeah. Like, mm-hmm. you know, so they see, you know, these record shops or you go to the Eaton Center and they name – or not the Eaton Center, but like, you know, go to the Bay at Fairview Mall or Eaton's, you know. Bass ticket yeah. outlets. Yeah, and it's yeah. hilarious because, damn, yeah, I am old enough to remember lining up. <laughs> You know, I don't know if it was Simpsons or wherever to get uh, Guns N' Roses tickets. Yeah, I used to go to Sunrise Records. Yeah. Yeah. to yeah. buy tickets yeah. at Promenade Mall. Um, oh, jeez, just hilarious. You know, you think you just re- it's you kind of forget how analog it used to be back in the day versus now. It's just a couple. You're you know you're a couple mouse clicks away from getting whatever it, it ticket. Would be you getting know. frustrated because it's sold out. But back then, seconds. you had to actually physically <laughs> go like to a event. store. You'd have to, yeah. and with cash, cash in hand, cash lining up. It was like an event. It was like, damn, I feel important. I'm buying tickets. Or if you're really ballsy, you you would call eight seven zero eight thousand and hope that whoever's on the other line can <laughs> hook you up with whatever you need. But a lot of these, you'll see. A really weird one was the Bowie Serious Moonlight tour. Yep. The only way to get tickets was to send in a money order. You had to like mail it. Really? In. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's in the book. Um, you hilarious. have to fill out your address and send a self-addressed stamped envelope, and that was pretty bizarre. By the way, that show was spectacular. Were you there? It was unbelievable. Uh, my bandmates all got tickets. They didn't get me a ticket. I was so pissed off. So my friend who worked at Bass said, you come with us. Nice. And so I got to the show. She handed me a ticket. We were front row for wow. that show. It was just mind goosebumps. It was, it was an unbelievable experience. CNE was just like, how many people? 60,000, whatever it is. It's 55,000. That's yeah. CNE holds. Just wow. Anyway. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you about, so we're looking at this Peppers page, the quotes that you got. So yeah. how did you, how did you like, was it crowdsourced quotes from fans or industry or how'd you get like, all oh, they were amazing. Instagram. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, from Instagram. It's, awesome. um, it's, it's actually interesting because the Instagram account, if you dig through it, there's just a wealth of incredible comments, mm-hmm. just people who, who feel a connection because you've posted a show that they've been to. Mm-hmm. A, it triggers a great memory. Right. Yeah. And they just write write about it. Right. Sure. There's so many amazing stories that just permeate the whole Instagram account. You could just sit there and entertain yourself on these stories for hours on end. And so um, it was actually at the 11th hour when I said to the publisher, I said, look, um, I think a cool value added feature to the book would be to take some of those comments and stories from Instagram flyer followers. 
and put them in the book. And they agreed. And so I went to work. I, I found some of the cooler anecdotes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, we put them in. Um, and again, if we do it like another book, I'd like to put even more. Um, because I think that's sure. where the real stories are, is the fan the fan experiences. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you know what I would love to see if in another book is how you focused on the genres and Queen Street and is to f- focus on the venues. I think that would be really neat to just get just dive deep. Like you think of what Craig did at Lee's and now, you know, and now he's taken over from from X-Ray yeah. and Kenny and like, I don't know. I just think. Yeah, that's a cool you, idea. I um, really I, wild. I know Denise Benson did something like that. Mm-hmm. She had a book called Then and Now, which came out, I think, about three or four years yeah. ago. Um, and she looked at a lot of very important dance clubs in our city. Mm. And she did these like sort of vignettes, mm-hmm. like maybe 10 page chapter 10 page chapters on many different nightclubs in the mm-hmm. city like she did um well she did many yeah but uh but yeah no there's still uh a lot of clubs and venues that haven't gotten that uh that you know books written about them and we could certainly do that yeah no and again i'm not telling you what to do i just <laughs> I, but it, no but as i'm reading this that's what i'm thinking in the back of my head man it would really be cool to deep dive into the bands that went through not just the horseshoe because that's a given right well and but the like horseshoe. the cabana room or the isabella or you know what i mean like yeah the so casino club history. the copa i mean yeah. there's just tons of them yeah government i mean there's just many yeah 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 another another poster here the who for two dollars and fifty cents in kensington market yeah. yeah and that's when they uh that's when tommy just came out two dollars and fifty cents <laughs> Look at the poster. Look at the art. It's amazing. That's like, art. I mean, it is. They don't make posters like this. Like that's why I want to. Um, one of my dreams is to do an AGO exhibit, mm. oh. and that and that would be one of them. Like that that who poster. Yeah, to oh, me, absolutely. It's, to me, it's it's a work of art. Um, it should be framed and put in the AGO. As far as so, I'm do you concerned. have all these or no? Like, not or all of them. Not, yeah, a lot of them are are from other collections. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so let's talk about venues. You talk a bit about in the book about this this hip hop venue. Um that the concert it, hall. No, it wasn't the concert hall. Let me no? quickly Fourteen Hagerman Street. Oh, Fourteen Hagerman, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very interesting place. Um so it was later called Club Focus. So it became a very big sort of all ages dance club in the eighties that okay. a lot of I guess suburban kids would go to to party in the mid to later 80s but that was a space for uh club music since the 70s and uh through my research one thing that really propelled me is i wanted to know how hip-hop started in our city like how did it first arrive here from new york Mm -hmm. um and let's take a rabbit trail down there talk to us about that. yeah so that's that's a rabbit hole i went down and uh so what i did is i i pretty much looked at every single magazine and newspaper that I could find and I just searched for keywords and searched for Mm. artist names so I would look uh, some of them you can there are databases so you can just put in keywords and see what hits you get others are not database driven so you have to go through say microfilm Mm -hmm. or physically page by page Mm. but I basically would uh, essentially now share magazine contrast uh, the Toronto Telegram, the Globe and Mail, the Toronto Star, uh, Mike Check Magazine, Word, and Peace. Jeez. So pretty much every publication that has done any sort of coverage on hip hop in our city, I went, t- I looked at their entire back archive, mm. and 
the Toronto Star didn't really say anything about hip hop till about eighty three. It was late to the game, as most mm. major newspapers sure. are, right? But when you looked at the um, the Jamaican magazines, share and contrast, you start seeing way earlier indications of hip hop naturally because they are appealing cool. to yeah. uh, the black the black population yeah. and the uh, the African and Jamaican population. So I was going through old share and contrast magazines, and I came across this ad that said hip hop freak of the week november 1979 come party at 14 hagerman with maceo sound system and i was like whoa this is literally the first reference to the words hip hop anywhere in any toronto print publication or flyer yeah right and so that was really striking to me because Rapper's Delight had only come out about a month earlier. And hip-hop wasn't even part of the lexicon. Like, people still call, either called it punk funk or disco funk or mm. maybe disco rap. But hip-hop was not the wasn't terminology, yeah. or at least it wasn't in Toronto. It might have been in certain parts of New York. So to me, that was really fascinating that somebody had the the wherewithal to, to take those words hip hop uh, to the hip hop, the hip to the, and, and put it in an ad promoting, promoting it in 1979. Mm-hmm. So I, I wanted to get that in the book because to me that's important and it really shows the genesis mm-hmm. of hip hop. And what's really interesting too is only uh, about a month later, um, there was a show at the O'Keefe center with the Fatback band. And I mentioned that, that they, could have maybe performed their personality jock song with King, T- King Tim the Third, which could have been the first uh, live hip hop show in our city. And then, of course, I mentioned Sugar Hill Gang coming here in January of 1980. And would that be the first? That wouldn't be the first hip hop, yeah, act. The, so, so the uh, and I mentioned, this in the, I mentioned this in the book that the the sh- the Sugar Hill Gang's show at the concert hall on January 12th, 1980s, the first verified quote-unquote rap show yeah. in our city. wasn't a great show. They only had one song, right? They probably did that one song, and then maybe the rest of the time they just played some kind of funk funk stuff. Or I don't even know what these rappers did because Sugar Hill Gang had all these rappers, Big Bang Hank and mm-hmm. Cowboy and, our, and all these guys. They had one song, so... Um, uh, that extended version, the one hour extended yeah, version. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just have a dance party. And <laughs> but that's, yeah, it's cool. Because, like, like, you know, t- today, Toronto's considered a hub of hip hop globally. Yeah, you know, we, sure. we've, mm-hmm. we've, good hip hop is part of our export, right? If you look at the last few years. Mm-hmm. And so I thought it was interesting just to see where it all started. Where it all started. So, what is, is. is 14 Hagerman? Is, is that, that's not around anymore, though. Uh, no, well, it's not operating as a yeah. as a music space, but yeah. I'm sure it's there in, with some kind of purpose. Interesting. There's a ton. Wh- I, this one I didn't know about. Seneca Fieldhouse? Crazy, eh? That came out so many times as I was looking through these posts. I know so many friends who went to Seneca. All tickets and then... Is that, is well, that the, the cool thing is, yeah, so universities it's, definitely played a big part in hosting mm. important live music mm-hmm. events in our city. Um, one thing that blew Rob away that I found was Leonard Cohen playing York University in 1967, which is super early for, for Leonard Cohen. It's probably right after he decided to no longer be an author slash writer and become, mm. uh, become a poet mm. uh, singer. 
Um, even Rob was stunned to see that Leonard Cohen was playing York as early as 67. Hmm. So that was an interesting find. Um, and then, of course, like you mentioned, Seneca College. I mean, I, li- I grew up near there. I had friends who went there. I was on that campus a lot. Had I known then that Springsteen, Jeez. Iggy Pop, the Stooges, Patti Smith, Bowie, mm-hmm. all played on campus, like in the mid-70s That's for nuts. a few dollars. Um, pretty pretty incredible history. And then, of course, UFT, Convocation Hall, was a, a major venue for other huge acts like um, Frank Zappa and, and Marley played there and uh, uh, Mahavishnu Orchestra. So a lot of really cool concerts came to our town and were hosted at colleges, and, and that's something we also mentioned in the book. And, and I think the one that I was thinking of was, I think it was Springsteen that got moved from Convocation to Seneca because yeah. he was getting, he was just yeah, his first show, something, his first not... sh- I guess, you know, it's 75, yeah. and I think uh, that's when, when he came out, uh, I think it was Born to Run, and he just made such a splash. Yeah. Like, who's this? Because the poster said something like, all tickets for Convocation will be honored yeah, will or be something. Honored. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. There, there was huge hype on Spring on Springsteen when he came here, and they had to... But it also goes to show you that they're just, like, there wasn't a ton of venues mm-hmm. back then because, mm-hmm. you know, the scene was evolving. So the universities had to come in and either offer their auditoriums or yeah. gyms to kind of, you know, maybe then... Maybe for this Springsteen show, they needed a place that would host, I don't know, maybe 3,000 people, and there weren't that many. So, you know, Seneca came in with yeah. their quote-unquote field house. Mm-hmm. But it's cool to just look back and think of all those different venues. Um, and, uh, yeah, Springsteen playing at Seneca. What, you, what are your thoughts on venues today? There, there seems to be not a lot of places anymore. Or, or, or am I getting that wrong? Well, actually, because Jennifer asked that on Facebook. She yeah. wanted to know about, you know, the the – the from big venues to smaller venues and you know the word is we're losing some yet we're getting some opening up and to your point what you well it's been made like from what you read in the papers it's mainly doom and gloom yeah mm. but there's also some bright spots like i just read uh the other day that um silver dollar is going to be reopening uh there might be even two silver dollars reopening the one at the original location and another one in parkdale um the Elmo, the Elmo combo is going to be a reopening soon, so that's great. Um, yeah, it's if you're if you're not a condo, it's tough to make it in this city. <laughs> yeah. If you're not a multi-billion-dollar developer, yeah, it is tough for you. If you're a restaurant, if you're a, a space for culture for arts, it's tough. It's just, you know, Mm. anybody can just simply take a walk on King West or Queen West. And all you need to do is count how many empty stores you see and how many blank, like, for lease, right? Mm -hmm. But you know who was there before. Well, they couldn't afford the rent because maybe they're being charged at this, by this idiotic principle called best and highest use, which is what... um, uh, giving problems to uh, what was that restaurant? That video they put out a month ago. I think it was Select Be- Let's Select Bistro. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay, they're paying property taxes on what the land could could be worth. Yeah, yeah. right. So um, yeah, they're a two story restaurant, but we could put a forty five story condo on here, and so therefore we're going to value the land based on as if a forty five story condo is here, and charge you those property taxes. Yeah. It, so it's it's killing businesses, and certainly anybody who has any ideas of putting uh, of creating a music venue, 
why would they do it? The economics are just impossible, right? So it is it is problematic, but it's not just afflicting music venues and concert venues. It's afflicting pretty much any independent uh, enterprise, any independent business. And uh, it is kind of sad, but you know, hopefully people can still take some risks and find areas of the city that maybe the rents aren't so high. One of the one of the rooms that's actually they had a meeting on Sunday night, just this past Sunday about. Um, Silver Hughes room and they're, they're about to face a big challenge. Hughes room. Yep. Yeah. They had a, there was like an, I say an emergency meeting, but there was a meeting on Sunday night to say, what do we do? What's the, what's, is it the, the taxes they're paying or it, the, it's, yeah, it's the taxes the are lease? going up either the taxes, the lease or a combination thereof. And I mean, I mean that place went down and then, you know, the cooperative got together and brought it back and people love Hughes had some room. Amazing, I've been there. My dad, yeah. the, my dad loves that place. I saw Ramblin' Jack Elliott there. Um, there's a lot of history at Hughes yeah. Room, and again, mm-hmm. that'd be a, another travesty yeah. if uh, a venue of that pedigree gets shut down. Yeah, hopefully, hopefully they, and again, it was an emergency meeting, or not, yeah, emergency might not be the right word, but it was a meeting of everybody and anybody that wanted to come to say, what do we do? Yeah, so it's hopefully. just, I don't know, it, it's just a lot of this stuff, I, I don't mean to be such a like sort of doom and gloom type <laughs> of person. I try to remain an optimist, yeah, but, sure. you know, it's just, it does suck. It's like, a challenge. You, you know, you walk the streets and you just, all you see these like big condos and you're like, where are the spaces for creatives? Mm. Where are the spaces for culture? And they seem to be dwindling. Is there a, is there a defining concert for Toronto? Hmm. Depends who you ask. Yeah. There's so many. And I don't want to say there's one because then there's going to be other people who are going to get mad. So tell right? me about your what you think. Like uh, you know, you're a huge hip hop or, or you know, rap fan. Um, is, is there is there one of those that you say this this is the like for me personally or yeah. for the city? Just well, you, well, you know what? Let's start with you. Uh, well, for me personally, it's probably the first time I saw Wu Tang uh, in 1995. I was 14, and was that your first concert as well? It was my first like. My first concert was going was seeing the Beach Boys with my dad. Yeah, but I was like eight, so I don't know if that really counts. <laughs> <laughs> but so like my first concert yeah. on my own, yeah, as like a teenager was yeah. was seeing Wu Tang. That's a good in, concert in ninety five. But it was it wasn't like Wu Tang now. It was like Wu Tang sure. in ninety five when they were raw, super raw, um, and the crowd was super rough, uh, and the music was, where was, where was did so they play? raw. Uh, this was at um, so before it, this was at Eleven Pulse and before it was mm. rechristened as the Docks. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it was just like an. Uh, it was actually like a rave space. It was just an empty space. They would host raves there and, and other things. So they had to bring in a sound system, and it was just it was mind blowing because you know just these little dudes from the suburbs going to this like super rough hip hop show during the peak era and prime of the Wu Tang Clan. So that was for me a very uh, incredible experience. But for the city as a whole. There's there's several shows that people talk about sure, all sure. the time. Um, I would say one of one of them is certainly um, the um, rock and roll revival of 1969 at Varsity Stadium, and that was when uh, John Lennon showed up and debuted the Plastic Ono Band with Yoko. Wow! And we talk about that one in the book. Mm-hmm. But people still talk about that to this day. They say that show. Um, was a contributing factor in the breakup of the, breakup Beatles. Of the Beatles. I don't want to say did the, you, the did sole you talk factor. About that story on CBC. Um, were you on, were I don't. You we were CBC? on CBC. I don't recall if we talked about that That's, story. Because that story seems so fresh in my. But mind. it's definitely it, it is in the book, and uh, actually Rob gave it a lot a lot of time in the book because 
uh, that show is legendary for yeah. various reasons. But one of the main ones is that Lennon Lennon was there um, with Clapton. Plastic to go in a band. Um, mm. uh, the police at the Horseshoe is definitely one of those concerts of lore that everyone talks about. Uh, their debut in a tiny room, uh, of which probably over a thousand people say they were there. But and it doesn't fit the, the room fits twenty, I think. <laughs> um, but that must have blown the roof off. You know this this new band from the UK coming in and playing Roxanne and just destroying the crowd, right? Um, the last Pogo is a big one. Uh, the last show at the Horseshoe when all sorts of shit went down because these cops were scared of all these punk rock kids thrashing up the place, and uh, uh, that was that's talked about a lot till this day. Um, Sarstock. <laughs> yeah. I mean, 400,000 people were there. That's true. Yeah. Eh? I think if you ask most people in the city what's, what's a memorable concert for you, probably one in five will say yes. Sarstock because a quarter of the city was there that day. And it was just a musical extravaganza. Oh, there was, was it Rolling Stones? ACDC. Came? Rolling Stones, yeah. Rush, ACDC, the Guess Who. Um, Justin Timberlake, um, Goldberg as well. Who else? The Isley Brothers. Jeez, yeah, it was stacked. That's crazy. That was nuts. I could have gone. When you ta- <laughs> you talked about you talked about um, the mystique, and Connie on Facebook was talking about being at uh, the Living Color show, which I was at at the concert hall when the tiles started coming down. I don't know if you're familiar with that story, but like they had to really like for the encore just play it quietly. And oh, then, really? Yeah, because like literally the the, the tiles were falling on on uh, the band on will as he's drumming um, that's how you know it's a good show when the the walls and the floor it was start it was uh, amazing start and at the same venue uh, masonic temple concert hall uh i remember being there for the you talked about the uh pearl jam peppers smashing yeah, pumpkins that's, that's a fascinating one that's that because that show was amazing because and i was there for that one because we had no idea who Pearl Jam was. Yeah, nobody did. We, we, we're like, they get out there and we're just like, holy shit, what is happening in front of us? So I, I had heard, I, I got a little bit into, into grunge when I was, when I was coming up. Uh, first started mainly with Nirvana. Listened to, I was maybe a casual Pearl Jam fan. But uh, from what I remember, like 10 came out and didn't really make much of a splash. It wasn't, the until, the, it wasn't until the Jeremy video. Came out, then all of a sudden everyone's like, "Oh shit, who's yeah. Pearl Jam?" Yeah. But Ten had already been out oh, for yeah. for several months, yeah, and they were was, just added to like a last minute, right? What makes that that story really interesting to me is that when I was doing some digging about Pearl Jam's history here, uh, their first build show was supposed to be at the Rivoli mm-hmm. for five dollars. Jeez, mm-hmm. come see Pearl Jam, and it's like in tiny little font in Now Magazine, you know, just some fucking band from Seattle, whatever, <laughs> five bucks, Pearl Jam. Yeah. They didn't end up playing that show because they got a call from yeah. from the Chili Peppers and say, hey, you want to join us on tour? We're, we're touring with the Pumpkins. Mm. Uh, they're like, hell yeah, good good decision, yeah. I would say. Uh, so they canceled that Rivoli gig, and then I think like a, a month or two later, sure. they had come to the yeah. concert hall, yeah. and that was a wild show, and apparently Eddie Vedder was like jumping all over the place. He was climbing across the... the, the um, balcony, like, and I, th- I think he had a broken arm, but I'm not really sure. And that's sort of like everybody I know that's my age says they were at that show, but there was only 1,200 of us at the yeah. show. Yeah. So Shamir Kanji, no relation, right? 
Oh, no, he is really. <laughs> um, asked, wanted to know from you, what, what shows have been, like, what myths and legends have been created over time that probably or didn't necessarily happen? Hmm. That's a good question. What myths? Yeah, or like, like, like the fact that, you know, like you said about everybody at the police show. There was everybody at the police show at the horseshoe, right? You know, everybody said they were at the, that Peppers, Pearl Jam, Smashing Pumpkins getting booed off the stage show. Well, I'm not sure about myths, but I can tell you about uh, – I can, I can flip that on its sure. head and tell you about something that nobody knew about that we thought was a myth that turned out to be true, oh, yeah. actually. Um, which was when we discovered that at the Wilson Pickett Show – in 1966 at the Masonic Temple, there was this guitarist who stole the show. And this guitarist and this guitarist was not only playing the guitar upside down, uh, but he was also using his teeth. And people were blown away. And he was known to actually go by the speaker and, and get that reverb. Right. And turned out to be Jimmy. Yeah. <laughs> and me and Rob were blown away by this. And of course, we had to corroborate it. Right. Because yeah. we, we're not just going to put out in a book that Jimi Hendrix played Toronto in 1966 with Wilson Pickett because no one's going to believe that. But Rob Bowman, because he's a Grammy winning musicologist and his Rolodex goes really deep with people all over North America and beyond, he's plugged into the Hendrix scholarly community <laughs> right and so he had reached out to all these different people and the hendrix scholarly community were like no no way there's no way he was he was touring with hendrix or with pickett in 66 yeah. but we then found people in our city who are much older by now you know boomers and they were there and they we had at least four or five wit different witness accounts that it was in fact Jimi Hendrix because many of these people would then go then went to the Jimmy show when he headlined the Coliseum two years later in 68 and they were like holy shit this that's is the guy dude. that's the who guitarist yeah. who who stole the show yeah. at the Wilson Pickett show two years earlier so I know that didn't really answer your question no but, but no, no but that's a good yeah, story yeah. though man. but that is one example of um, a discovery that this book process helped us find and, and that was super exciting one of the things i love about going to a live show is discovering opening bands that nobody's heard of living color opening for uh robert palmer and you're just like what the hell are we watching pearl jam opening for peppers did, did have you touched on that did you like any insight to that in terms of you know bands that really weren't top billing and then all of a sudden just crushed it and yeah, tons. Um, yeah, there's there's a lot. I, I the mean, Beastie Boys opening for Madonna. <laughs> yeah, that's a great example too. Right there. Um, <laughs> so uh, that was that was cool. Um, Madonna obviously coming from the New York club scene was very yeah, true, true. very on top of cutting edge and underground music. Mm -hmm. She was very plugged into the New York scene, and she knew about these, you know, three white kids from Queens who were making noise, right? And uh, Back in '85, they weren't they weren't even signed to Def Jam yet, but they were doing some stuff. Right? I guess they were doing they had uh, some punk songs. Maybe they're doing a little bit of rap. But uh, 
that was a major milestone for the Beastie Boys in their career to get called up by Madonna, who at that point was doing her first major arena tour um, because, you know, like a virgin sure. was blowing up the radio charts. So for them to come and open up for her was was really interesting. And, and I talked about it in the hip hop chapter. And what was really cool about that is, you know, not only did the Beasties play in front of 14,000 at Maple Leaf Gardens, but later that night they did the after party at the Twilight Zone which is a very interesting place that, again, if I had a time machine, I would go back to. Go back to that yeah. show. Yeah, and they ended up uh, performing at midnight at the Twilight Zone for all the, all the heads there on Richmond Street. And it was booked by Jonathan Gross, who was a, very, a pioneering hip-hop promoter in our city. And they had, apparently they had spray paint. They were like, spray, like tagging up the place with all their... Oh, yeah, I read yeah, that. Yeah. They were tagging the place up, and they put on a wild show, and their people got doused in beer, and pretty much everything you would ask for in, mm-hmm. in, in, the, in a Beastie show or a rap show. So we talk about that, and that's pretty cool. But yeah, anytime you see a massive artist today who back then was an opener and maybe had like just the tiny billing, like two, like three font, four font, it's just, to me, it's just cool. Because yeah. you're like, this is part of their... Their story. This is part of their journey to to be to be at the place where they are today. Yeah, sure. I think one of the, the posters I remember seeing in there was I can't remember who it was, and then it was like in small font with Canadian band Rush or with <laughs> yeah. record label X. <laughs> well, yeah, and I love like, finding old Rush flyers too, like Rush at A.Y. Jackson High School <laughs> or Rush. Did they really play the high? School? Oh yeah, they played a lot See, of high school. Because that's well, where they're from, right? It's really cool how there's a lot of these. <laughs> Like back in the seventies, a lot of these upcoming garage bands just did the high school circuit. Yep. Like you don't really see it as much now. Well, you don't see it at all. But back in the seventies, because rock music was so big, um, and it permeated all levels of of society, especially the youth, that a lot of these up up and coming bands would would play high school gyms. So Rush, April Wine, Lighthouse, Loverboy, Lover yeah. Guess Who. She's like, it's pretty cool. Yeah, that is crazy. Uh, Greg, you you need to talk more about that um, Smashing Pumpkins concert. Are you familiar with what happened with Smashing Pumpkins in that show? Uh, the concert hall show? Yeah. Uh, no. So Pearl Jam. This, this is, this is uh, the, me sharing this story is what's resulted in Billy blocking me on Twitter. But anyway, that's a whole <laughs> other issue. That's another thing I'm going You're to therapy by, for. You're blocked by Billy Corgan, yeah. really? Yeah, I really am. <laughs> that's yeah, yeah, that's my that's one of my my feathers in my cap. Um, so so Pearl Jam get out there and absolutely kill it. And then, and then Smashing Pumpkins come out, and they play their first song, and there's a fan in the front saying, play this song. This woman's like, play this song, play this song. And I think they played the second song, and she's like, play this song. And Billy looks at it and goes, listen, I, I, and I'm paraphrasing, or I'm loosely paraphrasing. Listen, I don't take orders from anybody, never mind some fucking bitch. <laughs> and it's Toronto. And you even talk about it in the book about like I think the Peppers were, or no Nirvana where you know it's a Toronto audience you just sit there if, if you've got them going keep them going yeah. right because if not they're going to stare there so they they start to play the third song they got booed like like booed like crazy and they left the stage and that was it I think I think I think yeah. It was yeah, I heard like, that story. It was <laughs> yeah. insane. And then the Peppers came out and yeah, it. pumpkins weren't getting much love that night. I think everybody came for the Peppers. Yeah, but I don't. I, it, what I remember about it though is it was the way he handled it. Like, and he's still the they, same guy today. They could have played their set, complains. and they would have. I agree with you. People were first of all, first of all, nobody expected what they saw with Pearl Jam. Like that was just 
They were the wild card. Nothing. Nothing. Yeah. No, like nothing. And then, yeah, you're right. People are there for the peppers, but it could have been a just a. You know, and my, my brother went to the next show when they were in town, and Billy said, you know, I know what happened last time, but let's just get along this time. Yeah, and that would have been the Chili Peppers' last sort of club show before they, because that yep. was right when Blood, Blood Sugar Sex yep. Magic came out, and right after that they were at yep. the Stratosphere. So that would have been an incredible show. And I'm kind of jealous you were there. I would have loved to have been there, but, um, but that's it was, cool. It was. Is there insane. one concert that you mm. wish, just one, if there's one concert while you were alive that you missed that you that you could have gone to kick yourself like any oh that I, that you kick yourself like for you not going, going yeah um probably any Radiohead concert Ooh, I haven't seen really? Radiohead live and yeah. and uh, I you know it's just it, it just never happened really I just never was able to get tickets to a Radiohead show and, and I've always been a big fan of theirs so I still kick myself for not seeing them especially the one they were here recently I was trying to get tickets and they were just sold out I couldn't find them mm. um, but. A show that I wish I could go to in any time span would have been the James Brown show in 1965. The whole city was in a blackout. The whole city. Except the one corner of Etobicoke You're kidding where me. James Brown and the JBs and the, or the Fabulous Flames were playing. Um, it's, it's stunning. And that's, it's not a myth. It's not an urban legend. It, it's, it's documented. Like I've read reviews of the show. And the review starts with... What was the name of the venue? It's called the Mimicombo Roller Rink in Etobicoke <laughs> on the Queensway. And I've read concert reviews. Yes. And the reviews start with, somehow this show went on because somehow this corner of the city had power. Now, say what you will, I feel it was the power of, of, of James Brown. Yeah. <laughs> he was the generator. <laughs> right? But that's incredible. Yeah. Um, not just because the rest of the city was was in a blackout and that that the show went on, yeah. but also it was JB's first show here. And, and you know, by mid sixties, James Brown was just electrified. Yeah, and are so you? A, would have been incredible to be there. Are you a concert goer like today? Like, do you try to go to as many as you can? Or? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I go to. I think this year I've been to like ten or twelve shows yeah. so far. So maybe like once a month or yeah. once. Every four or five weeks. Again, it depends what's on the calendar and yeah. who's here. This summer, we I saw a lot of shows. I saw Iron Maiden at uh, Budweiser stage. That oh, was I'm awesome. Myself for not doing that one. Um, I saw. Um, I went to Detroit. I saw DMX rapper. That was a really good show too. Nice. Um, I've seen a bunch, tons. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Greg, what's the what, what's the one show you wish you went to? Greg goes to like a show. Seems like every week you're at a show somewhere. Um, I, I would say I would say Queen would have to be the band that I'm. Yeah, like I've had tickets to a lot of shows that I haven't gone to that I'm disappointed, but Queen's one that I never had tickets to, and I just I kick myself for. When did you have a chance to see Queen? Would have been, well, it'd been the early '80s. Yeah, I think they played the Gardens. They're in here too. I think Gardens. Yeah. Queen and '82. Yeah. It would have been yeah. Prince, Queen and Prince one. are the two. Queen, I don't Prince. know if I was oh, yeah. into Prince, Queen maybe. at that time, but but Prince, so many chances. But I wasn't Prince. into Queen as much at the time. It's more in hindsight that I wish sure. I had gone. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, Prince yeah. would have been where I chose. Hindsight is always twenty twenty. Yeah. It's, it's hard to necessarily appreciate the moment. I've had tickets to go see Scott Weiland three different times and never did. I guess it gave away to friends or whatever kind of thing. And now in hindsight, again, I'm going, yeah. I should have gone. should have gone. That's nuts. 
Man, we've covered a lot. We have. Yeah. Yet I feel we've covered just, just the tip of the just iceberg. Just a little bit. Just well, a little the, bit. Because, well, your book, you say in your book you had so many different flyers, so many images, but you only used 100 or, you know, 100 plus. Yeah. Um, oh, another one I would love to have gone back to. Sorry to. Yeah, no, no. Was um, the 1957 <laughs> Rock and Roll Showcase at Maple Leaf Gardens with Chuck Berry, Fats Domino, Buddy Holly, and the Crickets. Hmm. Buddy Holly, <laughs> take me back. Take me what's there. what's that? The notorious Big. What's yes? His show here was what like twenty minutes. Yep, yep. So that's not an urban legend, right? Oh, no, no. There's a video of uh, that was. Uh, that's I. Yeah, I that happened. A video. That happened, and it was nuts. Did you have that video on your Instagram? Yeah. So a, yeah. So yeah. this is crazy. A guy reached out to me on Instagram. He says, "So I posted the Biggie flyer. Yeah. Nobody had seen it since '95, right? Because I was." Digging in deep crates to find the Biggie flyer because I knew the show happened, yeah. And I wanted to see some evidence, yeah, yeah. that it happened. And there is a um short clip on YouTube where Oliver Walters from Much Music is playing pool mm-hmm. with Biggie, and that's Jeez. cool, but that's I wanted more, right? Yeah. So I definitely wanted to find the flyer so I could post it, yeah. Did a lot of digging and I found it. Um, in fact, I actually found it in an old magazine. At Robart's Library at U of T, hmm. <laughs> out of all places, right? So I finally found this flyer. It's it looks beautiful. It's such a classic mid '90s rap flyer, and so I posted it. Got a great response. A lot of people are reminiscing about that show. And then this guy reaches out to me uh, on my direct message. He says, "Hey man, I love this post. Just so you know, I have footage of the show, and it's crazy. <laughs> it's wild. Wow." And I said. I'd be honored if you could share it with me and we'll share it with the world and just relive these this moment. And he's like, yeah, no problem. So like the next day, he sends me the video. He sent, it was about a three-minute clip mm-hmm. of the Biggie Smalls live in Toronto show. And it's just, you get goosebumps looking at it because this is Biggie Smalls before he got super rich. Yeah. Bef- because he was, this is only maybe three months after Ready to Die came out, his debut album. And so he probably hadn't even seen his like royalty checks yet, mm-hmm. right? So he's still kind of kind of gangster and grimy, right? But he's still very hungry in the way he's rhyming on this video. And, he, and what's also really cool about it is he's not on a stage. He's in, a he's cra- he's in the crowd. He's in the crowd, yeah. and the crowd is encircling him as if he's like the eye of the storm, and he's sweating bu- bullets, Everyone else is sweating bullets, mm-hmm. and this is a rough crowd too. You could tell this is like a this is like a Scarborough crowd, <laughs> Rexdale. Like they all, yeah. all the hoods have come down to see Biggie Smalls perform. They've swarmed him, mm-hmm. but he's still rapping his ass off. Yeah. Um. But eventually, it turned into there was a big commotion, and it got really out of mm-hmm. control. But it was really cool to to f- see that footage, share it with the world, and then it went viral. Within three days, that same clip was on was on Puff Daddy's Instagram. Jeez, and it's like, wow, you know, pretty cool stuff. So that's just one yeah. example of people, you know, like kind of going into their collections um, and sharing with me, and then I just share it with the world because to me, I, I really subscribe to the idea that I don't own any of this. This is not mine. Um, I have no interest in hoarding it or keeping it for any sort of like personal purpose. To me, this is um, this is open source. Mm-hmm. This is for the city, by the city. I'm just kind of helping to curate it or facilitate it. So 
you know, that's why I wanted to make sure that this is shared with as many people as possible. And that's really what's motivated the whole project is to just get this out. It's interesting you say that. Did you have any challenges with that, bringing the book together in terms of copyright or permissions? No, or not, not really. We oh, had cool. several meetings about that. Yeah. And uh, we, we did sort of the, the cost-benefit yeah. analysis. And we came to realize that even if somebody tried to make a claim, they probably would not be successful mm -hmm. uh, for a few reasons. First off, everything in the book is ephemera, right? So it was printed with the expectation that a it would be in the public domain yes. and b it'd probably be thrown into the garbage anyways mm -hmm. right number two we're not taking any creative person one creative person's work and exploiting it or or anything like or that modifying it, i yeah. mean we have hundreds of artists in here if you were one artist you can't make a claim on an entire work because one out of a thousand is yours mm -hmm. right um and then the other thing was it's you know who would want to do that <laughs> like yeah. like yeah like if you're David Bowie's estate an estate worth you know hundreds of millions of dollars are you really going to go after this little you know little Toronto book that has a Bowie <laughs> a Bowie flyer a in Bowie it flyer. are you going to get you're going to get the big lawyers involved to to recoup hundred dollars <laughs> or whatever it is <laughs> do, do it just a, wouldn't make sense for anybody do you so. have a smashing pumpkins uh flyer in there um, do we have a pumpkin? Because if you here? don't, then I think you're good. The peppers. <laughs> yeah, we got the, we got the peppers in here twice. No, that's not, okay. not that show. Not no, that okay. I've not never that seen show. a flyer for that show. Yeah, I'd love to see one, but I've never I've never seen one. Maybe one exists out there. Maybe not. I can find you one. Yeah, I don't like not. Yeah, anyway, to get yeah? offline. I think I can. That'd be great. Point you in the right direction at least. That'd be great. I did this interview with uh, Errol Nazareth at C uh, yeah, CBC. Yeah. And it's really cool. Like, you just talk to people, and they're like, oh, his producer said, oh, hey, man, um, I don't know if you're interested in this, but uh, I have the uh, Run DMC 1984 at uh, <laughs> Club Heaven at Young and Bloor. Jeez. You, are you interested in it? I was like, really? <laughs> Is that even, like, a question? Hell hell yeah. But he said it in a way where it's like, what, like he was am troubling me. Am I, am I bothering you? <laughs> this guy has 1984 Run DMC's Run DMC. first show in Toronto. Jeez. And they played Rock and Roll Heaven? Yeah, Rock and Roll Heaven, yeah. Really? Yeah. Wow. Which is another Damn. cool venue. All these venues from right. days just, gone by. Just up rock the street and, here. Rock and Roll Heaven at Young and Bloor. Yeah. The, now the subway and down below, I mean, it has spent a lot of time. Yeah. yeah. And also yeah. Called, it was called Heavens for a bit, yeah, and yeah. they had all these like video rock shows, and yeah. Guar, and Gatto, and all these <laughs> other like hair metal bands were, were playing there in the 80s, and then they had some cool hip-hop shows there as well, Run DMC's wow. first show in Toronto. Wow. Was that I Heaven? no idea. So, and that didn't even make the book. I mean, we we could do hundreds yeah. of these books. Yeah. Is there is there another project? Yeah, who's going to sponsor it? I'll put in the work if somebody <laughs> writes the check. Fair enough. <laughs> I guess I guess we'll we'll try to bug the guys at Dunder and say, hey, where's where's chapter two? <laughs> well, you know, it's uh, props to Dunder for taking the risk, mm -hmm. and yeah, yeah. you know, being a publisher in this day and age is Sorry. always a a bit of a shifty proposition because we're in a digital era, but. Um, People still love books, and this book has been getting pretty good feedback. Oh, yeah. So I think there's still a very strong appetite for music in Toronto music history, mm -hmm. and people are into it. And so, yeah, maybe we, hopefully we'll do another volume. You talked to right at, right at the beginning. It takes a lot of work to just have to throw one post up. Um, well, it depends on the post, like, yeah. and it depends how much energy I have. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? Like yeah. sometimes after a long day, I don't 
don't have the energy to like do a whole write up or, or do like a deep dive into the research. So I'll just kind of throw something up and let everybody else deal with it. Yeah. Uh, but other times, um, I'll, I'll spend a good couple hours, do some research and, and do a little write up. So there's some extra context. Um, like I remember when I posted, uh, the Bob Dylan show at Massey hall in 65, uh, I spent all morning researching the reviews for that show because this is the, this is the show when dylan went electric electric mm. right which is a big mm-hmm. huge controversy in, in the world of music especially in folk circles it was blasphemy for for dylan to plug into an amp right um and it was also interesting because right after that is when he hooked up with the the band the, band, yeah. the hawks like you know mm-hmm. robbie robertson those guys um and then when uh, ginger baker passed away recently i i put up uh, a cream post and i added some more re- some context on that so it all depends sometimes I'll just throw one up other times if I'm more into it and I have more energy I'll, I'll add some more nuance that's awesome man. Daniel thanks so much for spending some time yeah, with thanks. us thanks for having me it was a good talk and I appreciate it yeah.